Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Unfiltered Band, another episode of Unfiltered. You could jump on the Revolution at Casey Stern, get in Twitter, and jump on the Bio YouTube channel. Of course, you're listening to Apple, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. And thank you to the band as we sit here for episode 69. And it is fitting that it is uh, a, a, a number that certainly is is very powerful in the context of the New York Mets, as I welcome in longtime voice of the Metropolitans, Howie Rose. And, you know, Howie, I want to I want to start here because I wanted to talk initially when we were chatting today, partially about old timers day and then saw this morning the news of, of John's passing of, of yeah. the bad dude, John Stearns. How much more so I know how meaningful it was to people around the Mets that he was part yeah. of the old timers day scenario and able to health wise get back in there. How much more so is that even powerful to, to feel thinking back to that moment that you were on the field, knowing that he was able to have that before he passed? It, it was incredibly gratifying Casey and it's good to be with you, but you know, when we saw John, we knew that this was coming. It was hard to ignore. And in the days leading up to Old Timers Day, uh, we did not expect that he'd be able to travel there. And I think it was his son that was trying to get him to stay home. But John really wanted to be there. And it was obvious now in retrospect that he wanted that one more day with some of his friends and you know, with the help of Lee Mazzilli, he coached first base during the All-Star, the All-Star, the old-timers game, which was a little dicey because, you know, those guys weren't in, in playing shape necessarily. And, you know, one errant throw could have been particularly dangerous, but Maz had his back, thankfully. And, and John even got into the cage and, and took a few swings, you know. So that day meant everything to him. And if that was, in effect, you know, his his last hurrah, then it was a good one. And, and God bless the dude. What do you remember for younger fans who are, you know, let's say they started during, you know, the, the 80s Mets teams like I did. I mean, you look, I'm born in 78. So for me, you know, most of my Mets history as a Met fan came in the early to mid 80s. There are a lot of Met fans that that which I love as crazy as they are. They're soaking up the history even more so now, I think, Howie, with things like Old Timers Day. Mm -hmm. What are some of the memories you have when you think about John as a player, a four time all star? Let's 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 be fair. I mean, you know, people think of, you know, where he is in the Mets pantheon. But this is somebody who for a long time was one of the better catchers in the league. I think John was a winner. And I think he was the kind of player who would have had a role on any contending team in any era. It was his misfortune that when he was with the Mets, they were not ready to contend. And by the time they were, he was hurt. As I recall, he had a bad elbow. And um, that was one of the reasons that they wound up eventually trading for Gary Carter because they were hoping for a couple of years that John would recover to the point where he could once again be a factor behind the plate, but that just wasn't going to happen. And so, you know, things led from Mike Fitzgerald on to Gary Carter, and obviously the Mets won in 1986, and then John would come back and, and become a coach with some pretty good teams under Bobby Valentine later on. But John was a gamer, and the funny thing about John was um, he was very much enamored of his background as a college football defensive back. And he was a darn good one. And I remember one day we were in the Mets clubhouse in Philadelphia before a game, hours before a game, and Bobby Valentine actually put together a highlight reel of some of John Stern's <laughs> best hits while he was playing D-back at Colorado. And shortly thereafter, one of us asked John, 
So where do you think you'd have been if you'd played football instead of baseball? And you know what Stern's reply was? Canton, <laughs> which is the home of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So that's all you really need to know about the dude. You know, um, it was amazing watching. And from where I sit, you know, it's one of those, there are a lot of times now not living there that I, I wish I could be there, you know, type of moments in terms of just being a fan of this team. But to, to watch everything at Old Timers Day, and for me, like the game is the game. The introductions were, you, you know, that's that's the that's that's the feel part. I, I was sitting there tearing up. You just so many names and so many guys who it's like, wow, we don't give enough credit to yada yada and all of that. What what are some of the the memories now, just weeks later, that you have? Because obviously you're putting that together. You know the list, but you're feeling that too as this as that's oh, happening. Yeah. What was that experience like for you? Oh, I was a kid in a candy store. I mean, look, I go back to the very beginning in terms of following the Mets. So for me, it was a kick to see Jay Hook and Ken McKenzie, a couple of the original Mets. And and I think my overriding emotion from that day was just the joy that was on the face of every one of those players on the field. And again, we had just about 65 former players there. And for a lot of reasons... The franchise did not exactly embrace its alumni over the last 15 or 20 years, certainly not to the point where they were able to do what Steve Cohen said that he would do from the moment he took ownership of that franchise. And he had his first press conference. He was told that the fans wanted to have an old-timers day. He wanted to have an old-timers day. And, man, he did it up great by, you know, spanning the eras and inviting a total of about 65 players back. And every one of them had that same look of joy on their face on the field, Casey. They were so happy to be reconnected to the franchise. They were so happy to see each other and a lot of cases meet each other because, you know, Ken McKenzie and Jay Hook really had no um, connection other than by the fabric of their association with the Mets with some of the latter-day players, old-timers, if you will, and, and for them to tell the stories to each other and, and in some cases reconnect was just great. And again, again, they wore basically one expression throughout the day, a big, wide smile. It was great to be a part of it. You know, you mentioned Steve Cohen. And I want to talk about that because you, we've seen ownership changes as fans. You've covered and I, I you know, was chatting with you before we got started here about obviously, as you know, I'm a long time a diehard Islander fan. And, you know, you were sitting there and watching firsthand a guy who had like seven cents in his bank account sell the team on the John Spano on like his ownership and <laughs> the changing of the world. Right. And all right. All that. So, yeah. you know, it, it, it's it doesn't always come out the way it's supposed to be. When Steve Cohen came in, you know, it was you know, here's somebody who's us. Right. He's one of us. He understands it. He gets it. He wants it. And all of that's great. And I remember the first press conference saying, wow, this is like going to be a tough standard to, to keep up with just the way he handled himself. How impressed have you been? Old Timers Day, all the different things with the tradition that he's done, the way it seemingly he treats employees in the organization when you hear and read stories. How impressed have you been seeing it every day and what he's accomplished in such a short time? Incredibly impressed on a number of different levels. And I'll give you an example of, um, how the Willie Mays number retirement thing came out, because that didn't prove to be as controversial as I thought it would, um, because, you know, there are a lot of different ways to approach it. And, and for a lot of years, you know, my feeling was, look, let's either, you know, poop or get off the pot here when it comes to number 24. Um, either retire it or let's distribute it, because, you know, it's 
24 is a pretty good baseball number. And to have it in mothballs without being used, without officially being retired, to me, just never made sense. And so uh, what happened was we, we knew about the promise that the original owner, Mrs. Payson, had apparently made to Willie that when she brought him back to New York to end his career with the Mets, that when he was done playing, at some point, they would retire the number. That was a promise that she made to him. Whether anybody thinks that it's, it's you know, worthy or not of being retired based on two years as a Met is totally missing the point, uh, especially the point of what Willie Mays was about, what he meant to baseball in New York, even before my time. Because I really only saw Willie at the back nine rather than, you know, the front of his career. But that's not even the point. When we got together as a committee to discuss the feasibility of, of retiring the number, it was generated by Jay Horowitz, who loved Willie as a player. But it, it really coincided with Willie's 90th birthday when Jay said, hey, look, you know, there's enough people who will corroborate that Mrs. Payson made that promise to Willie He's 90 years old now. Can we just do the right thing already? So that became a big part of the agenda to one of our Hall of Fame committee meetings. And it was not universally embraced, nor would you have imagined that it would, would have been. But, you know, for, for reasons I won't get into now, it, it, it fell silent last year. And Jay decided this year, I want to take one more crack at this. And so we did. And Steve Cohen was sitting with us at the meeting this year. He wants to be, this is the, one of the great things to answer your question about Steve's involvement as owner, is that he wants to know about everything that's going on, and yet he doesn't want to overpower it. So he made it very plain that he was only going to have one vote in any of these Hall of Fame or number retirement elections or selections. He, he was not going to use the power of the pulpit, if you will, to, you know, basically pound his fist and say, this is the way it's be, the way it's going to be. I've got one vote and we'll proceed as such. But then when we were discussing Willie this year, we came to Steve for his thoughts. And he, I wish I can show you the expression he had on his face, but it was something along the lines of, why are we even discussing this? It's Willie May, just do it. That was it, just do it. And so we took a vote. And some of Willie's former teammates are on the committee, Cleon Jones uh, for one, Ed Cranepool for another, and they passionately, passionately stumped for Willie. And it, it basically became a no-brainer at that point that it was going to happen, and it did. And here's another difference. Um, and, and I don't know of any particular edicts that Steve has handed down about keeping things under wraps within the organization, but there used to be a lot of leaks. If there was a player move or acquisition about anything, to be made, anything, anything, somehow somebody would get it and it would wind up in the newspaper or on Twitter or on the air. Well, that changed the minute that ownership changed. And there might have been a dozen of us who knew about this. But to me, the greatest joy in announcing it on the field on Old Timers <laughs> Day was the shock value. That oh, is had. nobody had any idea how it at all knew. at all. And yeah. I, I've talked to people who covered the game, even people, friends of mine who cover, were there with the Rockies in the bro Everybody was touched by it. And, yeah. and nobody had any idea that it was happening. It, it's funny. I, I want to take a, a little bit of a twist, just following up on something you just talked about and go back for a second, because we just had all the Mets wearing 21 for a Berlin Clemente day, which, yeah. which is uh, amazing. I'm so 
thankful that the Mets played the Pirates, but how are we not playing that game in Pittsburgh every Roberto Clemente day? I'm glad you brought that up because I asked that on the air last night. And the answer is understandable now, and I didn't know that, and, and that's on me that I wasn't aware of it. But it turns out that September 15th is the beginning of Hispanic Heritage Month. And that date was chosen for a reason, coinciding with independence from certain other Latin American countries. And so September 15th in, in the, um, the Hispanic community is a, a very special date. And that's why it was chosen to be the beginning of a National Hispanic Heritage Month. And in, in turn, why that was selected as the date that they would um, honor Roberto Clemente and have Roberto Clemente Day in 2022. I also thought last night and said on the air, shouldn't this have been in Pittsburgh? But understanding the significance of that date now, it ties it all together. Yeah, that makes sense now. But it, I had the same thought you did. It yeah. just it, it, Because the league with scheduling has made many mistakes and snafus in the past, <laughs> as we know, right? Yeah. Um, you mentioned the date of September 15th. It, it brings up uh, six days from now as, as we had the anniversary of 9-21-01. And I always talk about this, and that was three years before I started working in this business. I was there as a fan. I had gotten mm -hmm. tickets that day, that afternoon, and gone with two friends to that game. Um, I often say sitting in the stands, it's it's the greatest sporting event I've ever been to, yet you can't use the word great because of the backdrop of it and because you can't use sports because it was about much more than that. So I almost don't even know how to explain it. it it's almost just the most emotional event I've ever been there for. What was that like? Everybody remembers the Piazza call, but but all of that from behind the scenes as that game is taking place. Take us back to what that was like six days away now from the anniversary. Well, first off, let me take you back to the hours before I left my house to drive to the ballpark. That's September 21st. I was not really excited about it. I was not thrilled with the prospect of going to a ballpark with, as it turned out, about 45,000 other people that night because the wound was still so fresh emotionally. It was only 10 days after perhaps, and in my opinion, quite probably the worst day in the history of our country. So given all of our tensions and fears at the time, I was really not all that excited, A, about baseball even coming back um, after the attacks, which it had for a few days leading up to the 21st, because the Mets had already played a series in Pittsburgh by then. Uh, and B, just being in that environment. So when we got to the ballpark that night, we had a little meeting. The executives at the Madison Square Garden Network, for whom I worked and for whom we were televising the game that evening, came to our production meeting about three, four hours before the game. And they said, look, this is going to be like no other baseball game you've ever televised, like no other broadcast you've ever taken part in. It's going to be a rather solemn event. It's going to be really serious. There are a lot of emotionally wounded people in the ballpark tonight. Um, you have to treat it as such with the reverence that the moment deserves. And along with that, we want to make sure that you don't get typically excited the way you would had this game happened under better circumstances. Um, we want you to kind of mute whatever excitement you might have, which already had my, my mind working because you could never predict 
what's going to happen at a live event or how you're going to react to it. But this was really something that they were serious about. They said nothing over the top and whatever you do, don't make any mentions because I know it can be part of the baseball vernacular. But don't make any references to bombs, explosions, or anything else that is going to really, really rankle someone emotionally. So it was with that backdrop that we did the game, okay? Well, then Mike hits the home run. And, you know, if you ever play it, you'll notice I said, yeah. this one has a chance. And Several I've been times a year, Howard. about that now for 21 years because he practically hit that ball to the Whitestone <laughs> Bridge. But again, mindful yeah. of the edict not to go over the top. You right. Know, this one has a chance. I was just trying to be sure. a little dramatic about it without being over the top. And you kind of know the rest of the story. But what you don't know is that my broadcast partner at the time, Fran Healy, was always in some kind of a conflict with the executives at MSG. He didn't like them. They didn't like him. His biggest connections and reasons for being in the booth back then were his ties to ownership at both the network and the club levels. So he felt pretty well insulated. And if they told him they wanted to do A, then he was going to go out of his way to do B. Right. That was just the relationship between Fran and management back then. So wouldn't you know it, after Piazza gets back to the dugout, and we've started talking again, uh, what does Fran say? This place just exploded, with the em emphasis on exploded. And just for good measure, he said, They've been waiting all night to explode, and they exploded. So he made sure to get that in two or three times just to throw a little dig at the executives. But it, that was that was Fran. It's one of the only highlights that 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 I watch. And I look, I love sports. You love teams, and I mean, it, I'm not just saying this because you're here. Just because of the, the two teams that are diehard in my life, you've been the voice of, of you know. We'll forget the Matteo stuff for a second. But like, sorry, you know, yeah. <laughs> Sorry to ruin it for you. <laughs> but, you know, the voice of, of many of those calls, right? And, and I, I grew up, I tell the story on the uh, all the time, but in first grade when everyone stood up and said, you know, who, what do you want to be for a living? Everyone said astronaut, whatever. I wanted to be Bob Murphy. So for me, it's like always about like voices that are indelible right in your past. That's the one highlight that I can ever watch and get teary-eyed. Like it doesn't matter a championship. It doesn't yeah. like it, from a highlight. I just I don't get that. But from that highlight, every single time because you remember the emotion of it. And you know, I, I mentioned hockey. I re I remember was it the Red Wings that the that the Islanders played right when they started? They, they were holding the flag. I think the first game after nine eleven. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right that for the, the opener. opener. Right. Right. I mean, like it, and I I was there for that too after that road trip where they came back and and was that Trache night as well? I don't remember. But I well Trache night was later that month. But yeah. Yeah. So I, so I, I re but they're holding the flag. I remember all of that as a fan. That's such a weird time to be a sports broadcaster. I know that. COVID is totally different, clearly, right? Context of it, what it meant, all of that. But to then be in a pandemic and be broadcasting and all of the different things that people had to deal with from you're not on site or you're not with a partner or, or all of that, how how hard is it to not have the energy of a crowd, Howie, and, oh, and to do a game? Like, I don't brutal. know how you – how did any of you did that? Well, it's our jobs, and so we had to focus the way anybody would focus on any job, and you just have to shut off those extraneous thoughts that, you know, tell you that this isn't right or normal. 
And, and that's very much how it was doing those games off of monitors. I mean, we did that for two years. And, you know, full disclosure, I did not at all mind sleeping in my own bed. Sure. You know, I'm 68 years old, and you get to the point where travel is such a drag. And, and I've had to cut back, you know, uh, this year on travel. And, and many of us in my uh, age range have because it's just gotten to be um, almost prohibitive because the schedule is so unforgiving. And so for a lot of us, sleeping in our own beds had some cachet, except for when we were in those booths or studios or wherever some of us did the games from. It was so difficult and so challenging. But, you know, you do it because you have to. And then what happens is, too, your pride in your craft and profession take over. And it became almost the game within the game to make the broadcasts on radio good enough so that people did not know that we weren't on site. That was my mandate. Make this sound as though the listener thinks that we're at the ballpark. And when we needed to be transparent because of challenges we couldn't overcome in the moment, we were. But by and large, um, that was what I took from that, a two-year challenge of trying to make it seem as though things were as normal as possible when we all know they weren't. Yeah, it's amazing how it was done because it is it is so incredibly difficult to do it that way. And unfulfilling, uh, I, too. Yeah, I can't. I, I, yeah, because, you know, again, it's like you talk about the context of the things in your head in a broadcast like 920-101 going in. So you're not being natural and, and right. You have to have a lot of that and reactionary to energy. There's no energy to react to yeah. when you're doing it in your basement where some people were or a studio or wherever. Yeah. As as you know, uh, now being a, a professional on social media on Twitter, which did we ever figure out what they what they try to delete you? I, I don't even know what was happening with that. You lost like eighty thousand followers. Oh, I was like, having like three fun times with that. Like, well, <laughs> apparently there was a glitch in their system that affected, as I was told, quite a few people. And so I figured, well, let's have some fun. I probably gained about a thousand followers. Well, you kept, kept going back and forth. I, you know, being part of social media is. I always say you you have to you have to take a context and laugh at it because you if you allow yourself to get sucked into it, there's it's it's so much negativity. This fan base, you know, this growing up, you're a, been a part of it. You're a professional, but you know it. You know it in your family. You know it in your friends, right? You know it from people I'm sure who are texting you, Howie. I can't take it anymore. This team's <laughs> driving me nuts. Right? I get that during games. I'm <laughs> friends of mine who should know better. I mean, dude, I'm on the air here, you know. How do, how do you Call FAN, leave me out of it? How do you how do you discuss with what's the therapist in Howie Rose telling those people when you're seeing the last couple of weeks where we know this is not 2007. Right. They're going to the playoffs. They're not collapsing. The Braves have played 116 win ball outside the last few days for like three months. But when you hear all of this that I'm sure you're hearing. What's been your take on the Mets fan hysteria the last two, three weeks about the way the team's played? I think you have to approach it as um, sort of a, a sage old guy who's kind of been through it all. And I can approach it that way now, much differently from how I did way back when I started doing Mets pre and post game shows, my earliest association professionally with the team when they were world champions, defending world champions in 1987. They lost two in a row. People wanted to go berserk. And I had to deal with that on the air in real time after games, talking to some real Meshuggahs, by the way. I oh, mean, sure. People, people First time, just, long time. Yeah. Oh, some absolute <laughs> looney tunes. And I would drive home from work going, is this really what I want to be doing? 
professionally. The Mets part of it was great, but talking to some of these huckleberries, as Phil Rizzuto would call them, was not kind of what I trained for or wanted to do. But at the same time, you have to make snap decisions whether or not to just, you know, let them go and move on to the next caller or have some fun. Um, and I had some fun, believe me. Um, the Twitter's a little different because, again, I approach it with the hopeful wisdom of my years, which have now piled up. And I know a good collapse when I see one. And this, as you say, is not 2007. The, the, the rules relative to postseason eligibility are different. They're going to be in the postseason. Either they win their division or they're a wild card and we'll go from there. But um, you got to have some fun with it, too. Like somebody tweeted me yesterday and said, Howie, please talk us off the ledge. So I just replied, uh, don't jump. You'll miss the postseason. And then a couple <laughs> of people kind of latched onto that and said, hey, this would be a great T-shirt. I said, have at it. You know, don't need to credit me or whatever. Or well, you can if you want, but, I'm, you know, there's no money involved. Just do what you want with that. That'd be great. I would love to see a T-shirt like that. Don't jump. You'll miss the postseason. I think that, that somebody can have some, you know, some fun and maybe make a little dough with it, whether it's the seven line or anybody else. So, yeah, go do it. It's like the, the Met fans, I, I feel like I say this, it's like, they have what I'm calling, I've been calling CTSD. It's, it's not post-traumatic. It's consistent traumatic stress disorder from being yeah. a Met fan their whole life. It's like you just wait for things to go the other way. But you mentioned Steve Cohen, Buck Showalter, Max mm -hmm. Scherzer. I wanted to, and I got two more for you. I wanted to ask you about Max because you you call so many games where he's you know against this team and we watch him, we're all baseball fans, and we all know how great he is. Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen in your time covering the game, a guy who only plays one every, every five days have the impact that it seems to me like he has on every other team he's played on, every culture he's been in. I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen that to that level where you watch the conversations and the meaningful nature in which everything he does seems to make a positive impact on his team when he's not on the mound. Yeah, it's not easy to do when you're a pitcher, as you say, working generally once every five days, but your performance I think, and at his level, that very special eventual Hall of Fame caliber performance, I think gives you a certain license within the clubhouse if you've got the personality to carry it off. And Max obviously does. You know, he is involved with everything that goes on in that clubhouse relative to, I'm not talking about the mood of the team or anything like that, but just what puts them in best position to win a game on any given night. I mean, he's like an, another pitching coach because, you know, he has dialogue with every one of the pitchers, whether in the rotation or even those in the bullpen. And again, he uses the wisdom of his experience to impart upon them things that might help them in any given game. And he's like that with, uh, with Buck, too. I mean, there was a funny shot last night. We saw it in the dugout. In fact, I think we, um, Wayne and I saw it in real time, not even watching on television, whether they took the shot, but, you know, Scherzer had come back from having pitched for Syracuse the night before his final rehab start, and he was practically, you know, attached to Buck's right hip. Yeah, I mean, he was in his, you know, Buck's watching the game, and there's Max right next to him practically obscuring Buck's vision for the game because Max had his face right in front of Buck's. I mean, it was hilarious watching that unfold, but that's the intensity and that's the commitment that Max uh, has made to this ball club. And it's been real, it's been tangible, and it's been helpful. 
Uh, the last one for me is uh, is on Degrom. Everybody talks about look. Statistics are nowadays they're even crazier than they've ever been. I love we always talk about the romanticism of baseball, which is at its highest point. I think always, if you're a baseball fan, that doesn't change. The statistics have always mattered more and longevity and things of that nature. And Jacob Degrom has had health issues and he's only been pitching for so long and yada yada, etc. But I said this a couple of weeks ago, you know, in my time, my lifetime, and I got the pleasure of getting to, to work with him and know him, you know, Pedro Martinez in his heyday. And I was at school in Boston during those seasons in, in 99 and 2000. And in my lifetime, the best back to back pitch seasons of all time, at least since I've been maybe ever. when you think about the era and the division he's pitching in, that's the most dominant Howie that I've seen a pitcher. We know Doc 84, right? And that year that he had. And 85, yeah. 85, first and two years in particular, right? Have you have you seen dominance when you think about the repertoire and just how silly Jake is making hitters look? How do you try and put into context what we're watching now with this level of Jake DeGrom? It's singular and unique, but you touched on a very interesting and important point in that from a physical standpoint, there's got to be staying power. You don't get to be Tom Seaver by having a few great seasons. You get to be Tom Seaver by pitching 20 years in the big leagues and taking the ball every fifth day. And in Tom's case, there was only one year until the very end when he was seriously compromised by injury when he had a sciatica problem in 1974. And he went 11-11. Grom um, has been otherworldly in his excellence over the last five years. But again, we're not talking about 35 starts a year and 275 innings. It needs to be that before you're Tom Seaver. And yet, I think right now, by any objective standards, you'd have to put Jacob deGrom on the Mount Rushmore of Mets pitchers. If you're talking about four, right? You know, you're talking about Seaver. You're talking about Doc. Um, we talking about Jerry Kuzman and then, so. and then yeah. obviously the Jacob DeGrom. The For me, yes. that's the that's the Mount Rushmore of Mets pitchers. Seaver, Kuzman, Doc, and DeGrom. But let's hold off on comparing anybody to Tom Seaver. And it reminds me of what, and you're too young to remember this firsthand, but Sparky Anderson took a lot of heat for something. When he was asked after the uh, Reds had swept the Yankees, in the 1976 World Series, Thurman Munson had a great series for the Yankees. He would become the American League most valuable player um, the next month when they announced the results of the voting. And although Thurman had a great series, Johnny Bench came up big a couple of times, especially in that final game, even though it was a four-game sweep. And somebody asked Sparky after the game about you know, how you compare Thurman Munson to Johnny Bench or something very close to that question. And Sparky said, um, don't insult Johnny Bench by comparing anybody else to Johnny Bench. And that didn't come off as, as well as it should have. It was taken as a sign of disrespect to Thurman Munson. And I know Sparky didn't mean it that way. And I would never mean it that way to Jacob deGrom. But Tom Seaver is a singular figure in the history of the New York Mets. It is through no fault of Jacob deGrom's that I would say it's unfair to compare Jake to Tom because it's apples and oranges based on how pitchers are utilized today and what Tom Seaver did for 20 years in the major leagues. Uh, this is a 
and I, you know, I mean this. I've said this to you before. A special treat for me. I'm a, a huge admirer of yours, and have oh, been, thanks, my, always have been. I really appreciate this, Howie. Thanks for doing this with me, man. My pleasure, anytime, and always great to have you back on the air. You're great at what you do. Thank you, buddy. There's Howie Rose. You can catch us on Unfiltered. Join the Unfiltered Revolution at Casey Stern, and enjoy on Apple, Spotify, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.